That's, that's why we're here. And, and um, the, Paul talked about it. Paul talked about it in uh, 2 Timothy 2, too, right? That the faithful are supposed to commit to others also. And we have a process in this church, uh, discipleship. It's a structured process that, that we utilize. And in fact, in the information desk, we've, we have a station now that's committed to discipleship. So if, if you have questions about how do I learn how to be discipled, or maybe you've been discipled and you, wanna, you want to go to the next step and to disciples, uh, disciple others, we have a how to disciple, if I could speak this morning, how to disciple class. Um, and then even further from there to Discipleship 2 and HBI, it's a process of making disciples and growing disciples, and that goes on and on um, as the Lord commanded. And we, we've had a class um, the last few months, How to Disciple, and we have four people who have gone through that process of learning how to disciple others, and they're, they want to engage in a deeper way in the mission that God has given to make and grow disciples. So I want to call up the pews and um, the shapers this morning to come up here alongside me. We have some certificates that we would like to um, recognize uh, their completion. Uh, J- uh, Joseph w- is not able to be here this morning, and so he, he had to work as, a, as an officer. He had to work this morning, but um, it, it was a, a fun bunch to go through and to work through. It's about an eight-week process, and uh, we had vision team in the midst of that to re-energize us a- as we finished out. So um, what they've shown me is their their sincere heart for Jesus and wanting to invest their lives into others uh, so that the gospel could be propagated and Jesus could be uh, lifted up and honored. So I want to honor them today. So, Philip, congratulations. Thank you. And Meredith. And then I'm going to give you Joseph's too. So, okay. Thank you. Okay. Let's Thank you. Amen. Good job, guys. How many like that old song? Man, I tell you what, I haven't heard that in a while. I got some sweet memories with that song and Trust and Obey. Remember that one, Trust and Obey for there's no other way. Man, I tell you, when I was when I was a young Christian, I uh, just a baby Christian, I was playing volleyball. You know how it is when you're just doing stuff you actually want to do at church, and uh, which actually, when I was a young Christian, I always wanted to be at church. Just to be clear about that, I loved the Word of God. I couldn't wait to get back. But uh, we were having fun time volleyball, and this what would become at the time I didn't know was going to become one of my mentors in life, and especially at work. Um, was a, a good friend of the man who led me to Christ, and he just lost his job, and uh, and so he's doing devotion at this volleyball game, you know, and I'm probably 18 years old or something, just graduating high school, so I got the whole world in front of me, and you know, you're thinking about what's next, and here's this guy, he's probably in his, I don't know, 40s at the time, uh, and he'd been working for a long time with this company called Natkin, and I mean, he had his whole career, and he's he's unemployed, you know. When that can shut down or things changed and he no longer had a job and he's sitting at this devotion and he's like, uh, well, I lost my job and, you know, it's been about whatever, 20 years there and 15 years or whatever it was. I'm going to take my family on vacation and uh, God's taught me that, you know, and he whoops out a hymn and we're going to sing Trust and Obey. I think it wasn't this song, but it was, uh, these two songs go hand in hand to me. Uh, it's so sweet to trust in Jesus and trust and obey, and we just sang this hymn, man, I was like blown away, because I had never in my life experienced somebody who, like literally, it was like, it wasn't just talking, it wasn't just a devotion, it wasn't just someone talking about trusting God, this guy's like going on vacation with his family, you know, I'd been freaking out, like, man, I gotta get a job, but the cool thing about that story is uh, he ended up being the key contact that got me into my job, I ended up working at the company, and he became my disciple, or so to speak, at work, and we just saw some discipleship uh, activity up here. And if you want to know more about discipleship, you've come to the right place. Because ultimately the mission of God, our mission here is to equip the saints of God in the 
in the Word of God to accomplish the mission of God and the power of God for the glory of God, by the grace of God. And uh, we want to do that, but ultimately uh, it takes us just submitting and following Jesus. What discipleship is is following Jesus, and you've got to know how to do that. So we have a, a, a systematic process to teach people the Bible. The Bible, the instruction manual for life is this book, and trusting it is the key, and uh, following him is the key, and, and having examples, right? It's hard to just you know, know what to do. It's often easier to catch what you need to do. Uh, and Christianity is not just taught, it's caught. So Jesus taught his disciples by his own example. And he didn't ask them to do anything he wasn't willing to do. And, uh, and of course, he went way beyond what our ability is because he loves us. And so uh, it's all about discipleship. And so I hope that, uh, that uh, I really appreciate those that invest in how disciple, those that are in discipleship right now, discipleship one, discipleship two. Uh, and uh, also HBI is about to graduate and so we got several seniors coming out of HBI, so that's going to be an exciting time coming up in June when we celebrate their graduation. So if you want to see kind of, kind of structurally uh, what discipleship looks at like, we've got a structure here. And hopefully everybody in this church, everybody who's a member uh, that's following the Lord, you can look at their life and see, oh, that's what discipleship is because they're really following Jesus. They're not just talking it, uh, they're actually doing it uh, to different levels. Of course, we're all growing at different paces, and none of us are perfect. I was just telling someone today, when you fall on your face, that's when there's grace, right? And so you got to get back up and keep going. But this morning, we're going to pick up a, a sermon, and we're in this sermon series, Reflecting on Reality, about the seven realities of HBF. And this really defines who we are as a church and our DNA. And, uh, and we're on our second point. It's been a few weeks since we uh, touched on this topic, since we've had a vision conference, and we've had Easter, and we've had a lot of things go on. And so you may have forgotten, but if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts chapter 11. And uh, this morning, we're going to be picking back up in the second reality. Real Christians are like Christ. It goes hand in hand with what we're talking about with discipleship. And it's been uh, nearly a month since I preached on the seven realities. And we made it through, you know, a portion of this sermon that I'm in this morning. If you have your handout in your bullets, and you can see I filled in several of the blanks. We'll review that in just a moment. The first reality of HBF is real or authentic people must be found in real authentic churches, right? We want, we want, we're a church that wants to connect with people where they're at. And we saw that everyone is wanted, everyone is welcome, and everyone is one. And we say one, we mean one to Christ, not to us, but one to Christ. And our first reality is what allows us to live in the reality of eternal life instead of the fantasy that leads us to confusion and condemnation. The love of God meets uh, all men everywhere where they are with the offer of forgiveness of sin and eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Jesus didn't come to the earth because people were seeking him, right? He came to the earth. Uh, the Father sent him to seek and save that which was lost. So I made all those points very clear as we went through that, that first point in our first reality of HBF. God wants real people, and he's willing to seek after you. Maybe this morning you've come here, and, and God is doing something in your heart. Maybe you don't even know how to quite define it, but you know what that is, is God is calling you. We call it calling. We just had a conference on the call of God God is calling all men everywhere to be saved. That's a call to salvation. He's calling everyone, saying, I want to save you. He's calling you to himself. To sal he is salvation. I just actually, my daily reading today, I was reading in Luke chapter 2, and Simeon says, uh, this, he is salvation, right? Jesus is salvation. It's his name. Uh, and so Jesus came to this earth to save sinners. Luke 19.10, Luke 5.31, Romans 3.10, Romans 3.23. I mean, that we, there's all kinds of verses we have looked at, and and we understand Jesus came to save sinners. Paul said, in whom I'm chief, right? Um, and so God will save the, uh, the most wretched. There's no, you can't out God's goodness and grace. He is so good. He can save you if you're willing to allow him to. If, if, if we're going to be successful in accomplishing the Great Commission, we must reach people where they, where they live. We've got to do that. We've got to get to where people are and get them the gospel. And that's why we've been talking about intentional gospel outreach, right? We have to be intentional about going and actually engaging people with the good news and sharing the good news. You'll be surprised how many people are willing to hear about the, the good news of Jesus Christ. You're also going to be surprised about how many people really don't know anymore. What is the gospel? You know, what is that? They don't even understand the fact that Jesus lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross, that he died on the cross for them, that he rose again the third day according to the scripture, and that he promises to come back and take care of all this mess I'm in the Warriors this morning, and you know what's on the mind of little kids? They're worried about World War III. I'm like, wow, it's like rewind the tape to 1979 or something. You know, it's like, wow, I remember those days when we were worried about the big war and all of that stuff. And 
that's all back on people's minds. It's, you know, it's a good time to make sure people understand that ultimately we trust in Jesus, right? Uh, uh, in God we trust. It's on our money, but people often don't trust God. We trust in Jesus. And so what makes all men common is our need for a Savior. And that's why everyone is welcome and wanted, and by God's grace, they're one. So the church will not uh, win people by marketing Christianity uh, to the culture, but by introducing people to Christ on a personal level. And that's what's going to turn the fantasy into reality. And that's what's going to overcome a lot of the, the fog and, and all the minutiae that's out there in the atmosphere today. So what, uh, li- <clears throat> what liberty God has given us to engage the gospel personally, um, we, need to engage, we need to utilize to lead individuals into the reality of that relationship with God. So having said that, that gets us through what we talked about in our first reality. And then we got into our second reality. And I want to just pick it back up in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, and, uh, and look at our text again. And to rehearse what we've covered and then continue on in this message. Acts chapter 11 and verse 19. Uh, if you would, just stand with me as we, in honor of the Word of God. And, and uh, we're going to look over this text again. This is the passage where they're in verse uh, 26. The Christians are first called Christians. They're in Antioch. And this may jog your memory from what we covered about a month ago. Uh, Acts chapter 11 and verse 19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenix and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then uh, tidings of these things came into the ears of the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they sent forth uh, Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he, uh, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus uh, for to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year that they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. It wasn't just people who believed, by the way. It was people who were disciples got the moniker of being called a Christian. Verse 27. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world which came to pass on the, in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Heavenly Father, I pray once again that you would quicken our understanding of your word, Lord, that your word would be uh, powerful and alive in our hearts today as it goes forth. Lord, I pray be clear and concise uh, cutting through our conscience, cutting through all the things that would uh, hinder us from a relationship with you. Draw us ever closer to yourself and to one another, to your perfect will, so we can take the word where it needs to go on time. Lord, we want to praise you today for all the word that's gone forth in your church, uh, in this building today, and all the ABFs, and the Sunday school classes down the E-Wing. Lord, all the things that are going on, in the, and even in our community and other churches, as the word goes forth, Lord, we pray, God, that you would be glorified, that you'd be ma- uh, magnified, Lord, that disciples would be made, that Lord, your will would be accomplished in the time that we have left, that we would be faithful to accomplish your mission and your power for your glory. Uh, Lord, by God's grace, Lord, we pray this would be accomplished today, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, as we looked at this passage, I already noted that in verse 26, the disciples, right, not just the people who called on the Lord, but the disciples, right, the people who followed the Lord were first called Christians in Antioch, and And our second reality is real Christians are Christ-like, right? Disciples follow Christ. They become like Christ to the point that, as many of you know, when the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, that was not a compliment. It was kind of like a backhanded slap, like you think you're a bunch of little Christs, right? They were making fun of them a little bit, mocking them. Anybody ever get mocked because of your relationship with Christ? Oh, yeah. I know. I know. They used to call, when I was in high school, they called us Jesus, right? And then, hey, here comes Jesus. And, you know, and I'm like, well, that's not a bad thing to be called, you know. Um, you know, being called Jesus isn't bad. I've been called a lot worse. How about you? Amen? So, uh, so being called Jesus and, and kind of doing it in a snide way, that's kind of what Christianity was like. You're Christ, little Christ. Because they taught, right, that Christ was in them. You're just a little Christ. 
That's what the Bible teaches, and that's, that's the reality of it. And it was so effectual in their life that actually people identified them with Jesus. They didn't identify him with their daddy. They didn't identify him with their, their race, whether they were Jewish or Gentile. They identified him with this one man named Jesus. <clears throat> and uh, may, would to God that would be our life. That's actually what we're in the process of trying to accomplish in everybody's life in our church, actually, is that we would all identify with Jesus, not just as Lord and Savior, but as, as we follow him, uh, we would be like him, literally, that we would be more and more like him. And I'm, I'm your pastor, and i got room to grow, a lot of room to grow, and I know we all have room to grow there, but it's encouraging to be around people who want to grow and go forward in their walk with the Lord. <clears throat> so our second reality is simply real Christians are Christ-like. We saw in, on the 27th that, that real Christians reflect diversity. As we covered this passage, you saw that <clears throat> in the text there uh, that we read that there were, initially the gospel wasn't going to the Gentiles, but nonetheless there were these from uh, Cyprus and Cyrene who were not of uh, you know who were not uh, tied down in Judea and, and Jerusalem that were taking the gospel to the Gentiles and God's good hand was upon that God's hand was upon them getting it out to other people to diverse people and uh, people that weren't just clumped in you know and uh, and then we saw as we got toward the end of that text that there's this guy Saul that <clears throat> that uh, Barnabas has the audacity to go and grab Saul uh, out of Tarsus and bring him down to be a part of the work because he, he needed really the doctrinal support. He needed to get the Bible Institute going. And he brought him in to get the Bible Institute going in Antioch, get their discipleship going, and, and to answer all the doctrinal questions. And, and the next thing you know, man, uh, this place blows up in Antioch. But nobody would have come and got Saul because Saul, well, Saul was a persecutor of the church. There were people like, are you sure you want to bring that guy? I mean, he used to beat us up. And so, again, he wasn't everybody's pick. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. So there's diversity. Real Christians reflect diversity by crossing cultural boundaries. So what we saw last time we got together is real Christians realize they don't have a copyright on the, on the Great Commission, right? God has given that <clears throat> to uh, all of us. And, and, uh, and so only by pride comes contention with the well-advised is wisdom. Uh, and so the tension that was in the first century church love was pride. People saying, hey, that's our gospel. And God was saying, no, that's, that's everyone's gospel. This gospel is going everywhere, and you need to be on board with what I'm doing. <clears throat> the things that drew God to Antioch are the things that repulsed many of the believers in Jerusalem. Right? The things that drew God to Antioch, which was the ability to get the gospel everywhere, it repulsed a lot of the Jews, thinking that God was going to just send the gospel, this precious message out to the Gentile dogs of the world. Right? They still had some prejudice that, that were, was keeping them from really getting on board with what God wanted to do. Uh, the third thing we saw is that real Christians remember the principle of prepared saint and prepared sinner. No doubt about it. And, uh, you know, you need to be a prepared saint if you're going to reach sinners. You've got to be intentional about the gospel. We talked about that. Real Christians should expect to be shot at from both sides as well. This wasn't no game. I mean, uh, if you were Paul or you were a lot of these guys, you're Barnabas, man. There's people asking, what's he doing getting Paul? You know, and there's Christians going, man, I, I don't trust Paul. And, and, you know, there's all this friction on both, both in the church and then outside the church. You know, the Romans aren't particularly happy with this message. Paul ends up dying before Nero, um, ultimately, for the gospel's sake. And, and so it was a real threat to the society at the time, to the powers that be. Uh, the fifth thing that we saw is real Christians are, are patient with those who say no and need to grow. And so we looked at that in Acts chapter 11, 4 through 18. They were patient. God, they, were, they didn't just cut people off. They were patient and worked with others that needed to learn and grow. And eventually the church did learn and grow, and they received. We talked about how they actually accepted the gospel, how Peter himself grew in his understanding of what God was doing, and <clears throat> he brought that back to Jerusalem. And, and through all of that friction, they ended up growing and learning that God surely did want to get the gospel of the Gentiles, just like he said. And crossing cultural boundaries, can it can really test your relationships. It really can. And, uh, and, it, and it did in the, in the first century, and it will today as well if we're committed to that. But you know the good hand of God's on us. And this church has proven, by the way, that we will cross cultural boundaries. We will do that. That is who we are. If you're looking for a church home, what kind of church are we? We are a church that we're willing to cross cultural boundaries, whether they're social, economic, racial. You know, it doesn't matter. We're gonna, we'll go there with the gospel, and we'll take people where they're at and trust God to get them where they need to go. The seventh thing that we saw is real, Christi real Christians understand the call to cross cultural boundaries is a command, not a suggestion. Uh, this isn't just like, oh, well, if you feel like it. It's not. 
You can want it to be that all you want, but that's, that is called a Christian fantasy, right? We, we make fun of the world and gender dysphoria and people who can't understand gender and all of those things. It's fine, ha, ha, ha. But you know what? There's Christians that don't really get the commands of God. They have mission dysphoria, right? They think the, the, they think the gospel and the Great Commission is some optional thing, that, like we get a choice. No, you're bought, I'm bought with a price, therefore we glorify God with our bodies, which are God's, and we go where he tells us to go. That really is what the Bible teaches us. There really shouldn't be some... We coddle a lot. Of, I coddle a lot of people, so forgive me. I coddle a lot of people trying to influence them to become a disciple and all that. Really, it kind of should be like, hey, if you're saved, you're following Jesus and you're giving your life to him or you're not. Because ultimately, that's kind of how it is in the Bible. Um, and so, but Americans, we're kind of easy. And so uh, the eighth thing that we saw is if we refuse to leave our comfort zone and reach out to other cultures, God will find someone else uh, who will be obedient to his command. Now, I didn't get a chance to, to, to really preach that hard because I was out of time, paquito time, I was done. And so I had to be done. And, uh, and so, so that's where we left off. So you guys got all that. I already wrote it down for you if you have your note sheet. So now we're going to jump into point B. Real Christians reflect diversity by crossing physical boundaries. So we've talked about these spiritual boundaries, these kind of social boundaries, but there's also physical boundaries. See, God uses anyone he chooses. In verse 19 of chapter 11 that we just read, it says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenix and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word of God to none but the, unto the Jews only. And so in Acts 11:19, while Jerusalem is trying to figure out how to control God's spirit, the brothers dispersed after the stoning of Stephen, Stephen are busy obeying the spirit of God. And they're going with the gospel everywhere they can. Now, initially, we see that they're going to the Jews only. But believers from Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean, I think, um, I think uh, the cabin, Miss, yeah, you were, didn't she just go to Cyprus? That's cool. Like we're talking about where you just visited. That's awesome. Sorry to point you out like that, Mrs. Cabin. But uh, she just visited there. So uh, it's a real place. Right? It's not like a magical place like you find in the Book of Mormon that doesn't exist. Cyprus is a real place, and, uh, and you can go there. have someone in our church that just visited there. And so this island in the Mediterranean, um, it's over 100 miles away from, uh, and was over 100 miles away uh, from um, the believers from Cyprus, uh, over 100 miles away in Cyrene, were about 1,000 miles away from where the preaching of the Gentiles was going on uh, in obedience in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. So they were, they were a long way from Jerusalem is what I'm trying to say. So it's, it, uh, I was checking my math there because it seems like it should be further, but it's, it's pretty close proximity in the Mediterranean there. So, but they're going up to a thousand, Cyrene's a thousand miles away, which in those days, that's a, that's a long ways off uh, from Jerusalem where Jesus initially started in, in Israel uh, with the Great Commission and in Galilee. So it's impossible... Or I'm sorry, it is possible that if we do not go to the mission field, God will bring the mission field to us. And uh, that's one of the things that Americans definitely need to get a hold of because we're a place that people actually find as a destination. People actually want to come here, um, and we know that, right? And you can get into why they want to come here. Are they here legally, illegally, blah, blah, blah. You can get into all those issues. But for, the, for Christians, what's our number one priority? Love people and get them the gospel, period. I was so frustrated uh, several years ago and under a couple, a couple of administrations back because the border was open and, I, and I, I knew there was a need. So I tried to, I got a hold of uh, Samaritan's uh, ministry, the one that, you know, Franklin Graham heads up. And I'm like, hey, let's go down to the border and let's start sharing the gospel with everybody coming across the border. Let's, let's do this thing. And so I started checking into how we can do that. And man, it was hard. You can't actually, uh, the, the Samaritan's ministry is not legally able to minister on our own, in our own country like that. I'm like, what? We can't go to our own country with the gospel. It's crazy. So that really even put a deeper fire in my belly. I'm like, man, we really need to be ready with the gospel. Because the churches, that's what we do. We get the gospel to whoever needs it. And uh, if you really want to see uh, people's lives change, get them the gospel. Here's some statistics. In 1950, the top seven cities in the world by population were, were New York, London, Paris, Berlin, Tokyo, uh, Yokohama. Buenos Aires, Shanghai, and these were the first cities in the world to reach a population of 5 million. And today, 5 million is nothing. That's 1950. Uh, Mexico City uh, was not even on that list in 1950. Today, it's the fifth largest city on the planet with over 21 million. 
In 2006, when I preached this sermon the first time, it was the largest city on the planet, so it's gone down a little bit. Uh, The largest city in 2018 was Tokyo, over 37 million people. And the second second was Delhi. How many have been to Delhi? Just show of hands. Oh, I know Randy's been there, and there's a few of us have been to Delhi. India, yeah, you've been to Delhi. We've all, several of us have been through Delhi. Uh, I've wandered the streets of Delhi, wondering where my hotel was one time, and uh, so stayed the night there a few times. But Delhi's a, it's the second largest city in the world, and uh, and so it's got a great airport. Spent a lot of time there too. Anyway, so yeah, Delhi in India, it's 25 million. Uh, and you compare that with like Kansas City, so so our entire metro area, including the suburbs, is about two million, just over two million. And Kansas City proper, Kansas City, Missouri proper, is about five five hundred thousand, half a million. That's about the population of Kansas City. So we're we're like under a tenth of these really large cities. And 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 Kansas City, by the way, is not a super. I thought it, we were like a little cow town. It's kind of because I've always lived here. I always thought, well, Kansas City's a little cow town. Kind of seems like that. Uh, it is fairly small for a city, but actually, among the cities in the United States, we're not—we're not—we're a mid-sized city. There's, there's like Nashville's smaller than us, which surprised me, and uh, and so we're—we are a pretty decent-sized city. We've got a lot going on here that people don't know about, which is good. Let's just keep it that way, fly under the radar, but uh, we'll just keep doing that. So everybody can focus on Patrick Mahomes, and we'll just keep getting the gospel where it needs to go. But um, <clears throat> from the time of Noah, right? I'm talking after the flood. Uh, not before the flood, after the flood. And so from Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, after they come off the ark, which obviously you can count how many people were there on two hands. And uh, from that time, the earth had not reached a billion people until um, the last decade. Uh, since that time, the population has reached and uh, reproduced a billion about each decade. And so let me restate that. So 70 years ago, let me restate what I just said. So 70 years ago, was the first time, this is kind of a crazy statistic when you think about it numerically, from the time of the eight coming off the, off the ark until 70 years ago, the earth didn't have a billion people. You, can you imagine that? I mean, that's just crazy to think about. And now there's, how many billion are there today? Seven. Yeah. So, um, so that is crazy when you think about the population expanse. The total population of the earth is estimated to be 7.88. We're almost hitting 8 billion now. And it's grown by 1.68 billion in 16 years. A few weeks ago, Randy gave statistics about how it was not until 1900 that the world had 1.65 billion people. And so as the world populates, uh, so, so must the gospel. So we can stick our head in the sand and pretend that we live in like 1990, right? But billions and billions of people have been born since 1990 crazy to think about. Um, And so it's time to get the gospel where it needs to go on time. So we have to be willing and ready to go across literal physical borders as we can, and also these cultural borders. By the time the church plant in Antioch was fully developed, their pastoral team uh, is is a cross-section of the known world at that time in Acts chapter 13. And so the diverse church is a reflection of a diverse God. The Christians from Cyrene and Cyprus were not afraid to reach out to people that were not like them. They spoke because God said, speak. And the Spirit of God drew other diverse uh, characters like Paul and Barnabas to participate in the ministry of reaching the world. There was a willingness there. There was a want to. And that's something you can't preach into people. You either got it or you don't. That comes from the Spirit of God. And it it does take a diverse church full of diverse Christians to reach a diverse culture. There's a reason a lot of the Bibles that we're putting out are not in English. Why would that be? Because people that speak Spanish are super open to the gospel right now, especially in the south, south part of Mexico. God is at work there. What should we be doing? We should be doing everything we can to get the gospel where it needs to go on time. It doesn't matter if they don't speak our language. It doesn't matter if that's not our culture. That's what we do. That's who we are. And it takes a diverse church to do that. We live in a time also where... Uh, Marxist philosophies are, are causing relational schisms in the Western culture to weaken it, right? So it's increasingly harder to now to, to cross uh, sometimes racial barriers and cultural barriers because everything's being polarized through Marxist ideology. Well, Christians got to be smarter than that. We got to be more biblical than that 
and we preach the gospel to all nations, and we advocate unity in Christ. Uh, you know, what was considered crazy love in 2013 is now being painted as, you know, con- controlling uh, Caucasian constructs from, you know, from the West. Well, good, I got good news for folks that think that. The Bible didn't come from the West. <laughs> it, came from the, it came from the East. It's an Eastern book. It's an Oriental book. It's not a Western book. It's, it's God's Word, man, and it crosses all culture. And so we don't have to get stuck in all of that business and, uh, and get into some fantasy that isn't biblical. We've got to start with the, the creator of the universe, the creator of culture. You know when God wants to divide, he does it. He, splits, he, he, confused, he confounded the language with Nimrod. Why did he do that? Because of his mercy and grace to keep people from, from literally committing spiritual suicide again. So he confounded the language, and it took all this time, and now technology is allowing that to kind of come back together and kind of a faux Holy Spirit. And I tell you what, guys, it's the time. Right now is the time to get the gospel where it needs to go. We need to, we need to hijack that technology and use every resource we have to get the gospel where it needs to go before Christ returns and catches away the church. So real Christians, you know what? <clears throat> real Christians are welcome in real churches. Man, if you're a real Christian and you want to reach people for Christ, you're welcome in this church. Uh, what church would have welcomed the Apostle Paul on staff? Think about that. Who would have, had, who would have sent him out as a missionary? Well, the church at Antioch did. This guy's rap sheet wasn't too good. I mean, he'd been murdering Christians at one point. He was, he was the one that consented to the death of Stephen. He took part in the death of the church, the church's first martyr, Stephen, in Acts 7, 27 through 58, right? His own testimony, uh, he says it in Acts 22 and verse 20. I mean, he was there. He consented to the death of Stephen. It was on his conscience his whole life. He knew what he did, had done. He, he made havoc of the church, Acts 8, 3. He drug people away to, to, to jail. He didn't just stop with the men of the house. He went after the women. You know he broke up homes. I mean, he was a bad man. He was zealous for God, but he wasn't doing a very good job for the families of his own people. Those were Jews that had come to Christ that he was particularly uh, upset with. He brought death to Christians, according to Acts 22.4. He beat, he beat Christians, according to Acts 22.19. If he didn't do it himself, he had guys that did it for him. That's even worse. He's like a mobster, right? And so he he has these guys doing it for him. Uh, I mean, man, and you want that guy to come preach at your church? You do once he gets saved, yes. He voted to put Christians to death in Acts 26.10. He compelled Christians to blaspheme through acts of torture in Acts 26.11. So he knew what what it was like to, to cause people to say, Okay, uncle, and turn on their faith and blaspheme. And at one time, he was happy with that until he got on the road to Damascus and God changed his life. And so there's no room in this church for racism, Marxism, social segregation. If, if we permit that, we're choosing to miss our call. Real Christians reflect a love for all people because all people are forgiven once they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But not every person knows that. And it's our job to get them, to that, get them the good news. So real Christians reflect diversity. You guys understand that? I think that's a pretty salient point. It's easy to understand. Point two, real Christians reproduce spiritually. Now we saw in verses 21 through 26 uh, how that happens. It says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned into the Lord. You know, Paul Clark, when he came here several years ago, he spoke, and and he was really adamant. If your church isn't about missions, you're out of God's will. And, uh, and really, you can see here in Acts 11, this church was about taking the gospel where it needed to go, and the good hand of the Lord was upon them. It says that in, in, in verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. And I tell you guys, that's, there's nothing cooler than to know the hand of the Lord is with you. And when you show up on a Saturday, and you've got the Bible going out to students, you've got the armory full of people putting Bibles out that are going to go to, to Mexico or wherever in, in, uh, in Latin-speaking uh, Spanish-speaking countries, and the Word of God's going forth. I mean, it's like, yes, Lord, this is what God wants. Isn't it, isn't it good to know the good hand of the Lord's upon you? Amen, it is. You can go a long way with that. The hand of the Lord was with them, according to Acts 11.21. <clears throat> In the Scripture, the hand of the Lord references His goodness to those who obey His command. Hezekiah obeyed God's call to unite the kingdom as it was under David and Solomon. Right, there was a time when there was unity, and then it was divided, and, and Hezekiah came along, and his heart was to see that reconciliation. He wanted to see that Philadelphian spirit come back, so to speak. And he obeyed God's call to unite them uh, for all that would come. 
And God's good hand was upon him, according to Second Chronicles 29, and verse 36. It says, And Hezekiah rejoiced in all the people that God prepared uh, the people for the thing was done suddenly. Second Chronicles 30, verse 12 says, And also in Judah the hand of God was, uh, to, was to give them one heart to do the commandment of the king and of the princes by the word of the Lord. It was God's hand that was drawing people to himself. Now in the Bible, the right hand of God is who? Jesus, right? He's the right hand of the Father. And so God was calling them, bringing them together. In Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, they obeyed God, and both are recorded, Ezra and Nehemiah, as having the good hand of God upon them because they obeyed the word of God. In Ezra 7 and verse 9, the Bible says, For unto this day, on the first day of the month, began he to go up from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Do you want the good hand of the Lord upon your life? Well, then get on the bus and get in a position to both know the word of God and then teach the word of God. The good hand of the Lord will be upon your life as you line your life up with what you're teaching. In Ezra 8 and verse 17, the Bible says, And I sent them with uh, commandment unto Idu, the chief of the... uh, the place uh, Casaphia, and I told them uh, what they should say unto Idu and his brethren and the Nethanims in the place of Casaphia, and they should bring unto us ministers for the house of our God. They're like, we need some people here to, to do what God says needs to be done in the house of worship. We need to get things going the way God said. So they did that, and it says, and by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Malai, the sons of Levi, the son of Israel, uh, the Sherebah, and his son and his brethren, 18. God brought the men that the, that the, the man that Israel needed to continue the mission of God. You know, I'm praying that when God adds to his church, right, uh, we want to see all souls saved, but ultimately God's actually building his church so the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Some of y'all are, are key people that God has, and they're key pieces in the puzzle, and God needs you to be plugged into his church and his ministry so you can, so you can be the people that God saved you to be, to be part of this ministry of reconciliation, so that the good hand of God is not just upon you, but upon us. And key people at key times make a key difference. In Nehemiah 2.8, a letter was given unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he might give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house and for the wall and the city and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. You know what? Nehemiah needed resources to accomplish God's mission. And you know what he credits for getting those resources? Well, he names the guy and he names the material, but ultimately it was God's good hand upon him. The reason this church is where it is today, and I'm not saying we're everything that we need to be or we've been everything we should be and all of that, so don't misunderstand me. We're all made of clay. But at the end of the day, God has put us here and accomplished some magnificent things over the last several years. Why? Because of his good hand upon us. Because we're committed to the mission of God, to the word of God, to getting the, the gospel where it needs to go, to making disciples that make disciples, that plant churches, that accomplish the mission. That's what we're all about. And you know what? We don't always have all the resources. Financially, uh, people-wise, we don't work with everything. That we, I got blank holes in my, in my plans, right? I need a person here. I need a person there. I need a person. Don't have them. Well, you know what? If you can line up with 10 people, it doesn't matter if you're playing against 11. We're going to line up with 10 and we're going to go, right? And so that happens in uh, soccer too sometimes. You've got to play with less people. Uh, isn't that true? Who's soccer? Yeah, that's true, right. Well, you can't just quit. You've got to play with what you got and trust God that his good hand's upon you and he'll fill up the difference. It's worth noting that the good hand of God was upon those who desired God's will for the people of God and dedicated their life in seeking God's will to be accomplished. They wanted to see God's will done. Do you want to see God's will done? I loved what I mean. I loved what Andrew said in the vision conference. There's sometimes we just don't have the want to, right? We need to ask. We need to be honest with God and say, God, my heart's not right. I need the want to. Let Him give us the want to. Ezra built the priesthood and established worship. Nehemiah built the walls and established order. Both were fruitful because the good hand of God was upon them. They didn't have to do the same thing. God wasn't asking Nehemiah to be a priest. He was asking him to be a project manager. He wasn't asking Ezra to be a project manager. He's asking Ezra to be a priest and a ready scribe, right? Be who God has saved you to be. Do what you need to be doing for the kingdom of God, and God will advance the kingdom because you will be part of advancing what God needs to advance in the lives of others through discipleship. 
Bearing fruit spiritually depends on God. It's, not on, it's on Him to get that done. He gives the increase. It may seem impossible, like a camel passing through the eye of a needle, right? Matthew 19, 24, or Mark 10, 25. But what did God say? Hey, but with me all things are possible. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men it's impossible. With, with God all things are possible. So what are we saying? It can't, you can't reach the world. You can't have an influence from Cass County. You can't do that. You can't. Well, who, who says? We can do everything God calls us to do, which is accomplish the mission of God and the power of God for the glory of God, because it glorifies Him. He uses the weak things, by the way, to confound the wise. He uses the things that are not to bring the past things that are. So you really can't say that God won't use you, and you can't say that He won't use us to accomplish His mission. The only reason He won't is you won't let Him, you, and I won't let Him. We've got to be willing to trust and obey, right? To, to trust Jesus. So if we don't bear fruit because we, <clears throat> we believe we can, I'm sorry, we don't bear fruit because we believe we can. We bear fruit because we believe He can. And there's a big difference, right? You don't bear fruit because you think you can do it. You bear fruit because He can do it. And I mean, in a physical sense, Amy and I are super acquainted with that. Right? We, we tried our best to bear fruit. And when we finally had to quit and give up, God gave us fruit in a way we never expected. Right? God will give you fruit in the way He wants. It's His power. He can do it. Matthew 6, 27 says, Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? You can't grow taller just because you want to. Right? God's the one that controls that. John 16, 23, the Bible says, In, in that day they shall ask me uh, nothing... <clears throat> Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have you asked for nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. You know, sometimes we don't get what we want or what we need because we don't ask. You have not because you ask not. Or you're asking for the wrong thing, right? We ask amiss. So we often don't bear fruit because we don't realize it's God's will. And, and we need to care that it is God's will and pray according to God's will so that God can be glorified through the fruit and, the, and much fruit and fruit that remains. So let's pause for a moment. I know I don't have a lot of time, but let's pause here and just think about that in your life today. Do you have the fruit of salvation? Are you born again? Is there evidence of that? Would anyone accuse you of being born again? Right? Wouldn't that be a good thing to accuse you? That guy looks like he's born. He acts like it. I mean, I think that guy's born again. It's sad. It's sad when there's people in the church, sometimes you scratch your head and go... They said they're saved, but I'm not sure. I'll take them at their word, but boy, I sure can't. I sure wouldn't accuse them of it. You know what I'm saying? They're, that hypocrite, they're one thing on Sunday, and then they go home, they're something else. Or they go to work or go to school. Nobody, nobody at work or school's accusing them of being Christian. Nobody at school's calling them Jesus. Nobody at work's accusing them. I remember when they laughed, at, I told a guy one time, I was looking at a job, and I was looking at this pulpit and everything. He goes, what are you looking at? I said, I'm just thinking about what it would be like to be a pastor. I mean, he laughed out loud. And I was like, man, that's, that's a shame. This guy doesn't believe that he obviously doesn't see Jesus in me. Now, that changed over time. That was really encouraging, actually, in a weird way. I was like, this guy, his name was Don Ersman, and uh, Don didn't see it in me. I thought, man, I must not. He couldn't accuse me of being a pastor. That changed over time. And so you got to grow, right? So it's okay. If you're not where you need to be right now, that's what discipleship's all about. You're welcome and wanted. I'm not here to make you feel bad or beat anybody up. We're here to help you get to that next spot, right? I'm not wanting to shame you into anything that you're not. I want you to literally follow Jesus and trust him for the fruit, right? A supernatural transformation where he actually morphs you like into this person that looks like him, where you surprise yourself sometimes. You're like, whoa, that wasn't me. That was awful kind. <laughs> you know? Well, I'm shocked yourself. Like, man, that's not how I would have responded once upon a time. Why, why are you responding that way? Because of Jesus. Jesus has changed you from the inside out. It's amazing. It's an awesome thing. So God is, he's not stingy with his good news or his goodness. In Ezra 7, and we've looked at that, it says, In great number believed and turned, they repented unto the Lord in Acts 8.21. Uh, a good number, man, a great number. God wants to get the gospel where it needs to go. He wants to use you. Uh, he doesn't want to turn down the tap. He wants us to get the gospel of grace out as much as we can before the wrath of God falls on the world. It's his heart to save people from the wrath to come. 
And so in Romans 2, 4, the Bible tells us that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Right after going through that list in Romans chapter 1 of the world and all the wickedness and all of that stuff, then he says, oh yeah, but you all, right, that know better. The goodness of God. Don't you remember? It's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Man, aren't you glad you're saved? Whew! Man, I'm glad I don't face the wrath to come. It's that very thing that's, that, that really motivates us. To whom much is given, much is required. To those that have been forgiven much, they love much. Right? And beloved, that's who we are. That's why we cross cultural boundaries. That's why we take mission trips. That's why we get our passports and save money. That's why we put Bibles together. That's why we reach out to people that aren't like us and, and, uh, and don't maybe understand Christian culture, that don't get all of that. Okay, cool. They don't have to. All they have to get is Jesus, and Jesus will get them there. Why do we want to get that out to people? Because well, we realize that, well, that's us. If it wasn't for Jesus, we'd be stuck in trespass and sins. And God has been so good to us. Oh, that we would see the, 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 the turning from sin to the Savior. How shall they hear the good news of the gospel without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they be sent? That's what Paul said in Romans 10, 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they uh, preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring, good, uh, bring glad tidings of good things. Glad tidings of good things. So it's not the gospel of God's wrath, it's the gospel of God's grace. The good news is that you don't have to face the wrath to come. That's a glad tiding. We're not going, hey man, you're going to go to hell. They will go to hell if we don't share the good news. right? We need to, we need to realize we've got the glad tidings. Boy, isn't today full of just dark clouds and gloom and doom? I'm, I'm hearing it. World War III over here. In the, in, the kids are thinking about World War III, World War III, nuclear weapons, all that kind of stuff. Ten-year-olds, nine-year-olds, eight-year-olds, you know what they need? They need glad tidings. They need peace. That's right. They need the gospel of peace. They need to see parents opening up and singing a hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." Let's go on vacation, you know, and, uh, and just trust in God. Trust in God with His Word. This reality of God's goodness should produce an, a praise and worship in our life. It should also cause us to be intentional about our gospel outreach. Now, point three here, new life in Christ produces an excitement. When you look back at our text in Acts chapter 11, down in verse 22, there's this excitement. It says, Then the tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas, and, and uh, <clears throat> that he should go as far as Antioch, whom when he came he had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. I mean, in the text you can tell this guy's an exhorter, he's an encourager. And you can just tell that Barnabas, is he's fired up, as we would say today. And he gets down there and he, he says, man, this is so cool. The tidings of good news of their repentance spread all the way to Jerusalem. Everybody was hearing about it. There's something going on down there. And just like a new baby, it's a joy. And so it's a delight to behold these things. I was so excited this weekend. I was praying, Doug, how he had an outreach in Romania. 100% chance of rain. And they had a big Easter thing. The mayor was involved. They had Casey Wolf come over. Uh, you know, John, I, can't, I don't know if we're supposed to say his name or not. But anyway, so Casey Wolf goes over there. A team from Midtown's. They got all this planned, 100% chance of rain. And, and he's desperate. He's like, man, just pray. You know what? No rain. The sun even came out, he said, for a little bit. I saw the pictures. Just, I woke up this, early this morning just to see what happened. What happened? You know, I was excited about it. I'm like, man, Lord... Well, did, did you answer our prayer? Well, he's always going to say yes or no, right? Or not right now. It's going to happen. Man, it happened. I was like, man, isn't that exciting? It's exciting. And what was that excitement about? It's not about eggs, and it's not about, uh, you know, the Eastern Church's, you know, rendition of Easter. It's about the gospel going forth. That should excite us. It should cause us to do crazy things by faith and trust God to get the gospel where it needs to go. We should be excited about the evidence of God's grace and we see multitudes of people coming to faith. In Acts eleven twenty three through 24, Barnabas saw the grace of God, and he was so glad to see that. The old saying is, if our Christianity is not contagious, 
it's, it's corrupt, isn't it? There's some truth to that. While the brothers down in Jerusalem fought over who could be saved and, and who should be saved and who couldn't have the Spirit of God, God's like, okay, you guys keep fighting. I'm going to go over here with Barnabas. <laughs> I'm going to Antioch where the Spirit of God's moving, where the good hand of God is at, at work. If you want to get out of your spiritual fog, pray God's will. Pray that God would give you doors of utterance and boldness to speak. I mean, Jeremy just put together a good outline of how to preach, uh, pray for evangelism. And you know what it's all about? It's seven points on that very point of just praying that God would open up doors, that he would give us the words that we need to speak, he would give us the boldness that we need, that we would be able to get the gospel where it needs to go. You want to pray for lost people? Well, pray that you are part of the, the solution. And man, you'll be surprised what God will do. Agree with God that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then go and tell the world. Point B, the real Christians don't just make babies, they raise them. It's fun to talk about evangelism. Evangelism's fun. It really is. But making babies is where it's at. Or making babies is where it's at. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know if that was Freudian slip or out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. But anyway, uh, what I meant to say... What I said was true, uh, but what I meant to say is real Christians don't just make babies, but they raise them. That's the hard part, all right? Raising the babies. So I'm blushing. Okay, so the saints at Antioch received instruction. <laughs> Terrible. I'm going to take a drink now. So. Real Christians don't just make babies. They raise them. Okay. So notice, and you've heard me say that before. So notice that Barnabas and Paul didn't continue uh, evangelistic campaigns. They, he, he actually credit Barnabas, right, for going up to, to, to get Saul of Tarsus. By that time, he was back in Tarsus and brought him back down to invest in the saints that were getting saved. So, so Barnabas wasn't short-sighted, like, man, this is great. I'm going to go to the next spot right now. And if God called him, he would have went, but God didn't call him to do that. God called him to grab somebody who could make disciples and it's when paul shows up suddenly you see that they're disciples in antioch because paul had that doctrinal knowledge that he was investing in the bible doctrine is just teaching by the way if you don't know what that word means he had the understanding of the word of god today there's a lot of cheap christianity in america it's based on entertainment it's based on emotions it is not based on a deep understanding of the word of god beloved biblical christianity cannot go forward without that it'll be overran because there's no walls, there's no control, there's no understanding of the, of the Word of God. This is our sword, this is our weapon, man, this is, this is it. You've got to know the Word of God. It was when God brought, the, God, brought, God, uh, God brought Paul in that things changed in regard to seeing disciples down in Antioch. So not only did they receive instruction, they reflected Christ. There are some who may be in this room who would say, you know, you're saved, but you don't really reflect Christ. Take discipleship seriously, and people will take you and your faith seriously. You say, man, how do I... Brian, I'm kind of like wanting people to take me more serious at work or at school or at home. Maybe your wife thinks you're a joke or your husband thinks you're a joke for Christ. Well, first of all, please Jesus, right? That's the first and foremost. Just please Him. Love, right? If you're a man, you love your wife. If you're a man, you respect your husband. Unconditional love for your wife, unconditional respect for your husband. And you do those two things, and you do it for Jesus' sake. And man, voila, all of a sudden they'll start seeing you as a real disciple. It's amazing how that works. This is what supernatural growth process is called. It's called discipleship, and, and that's what it's all about. Discipleship. The supernatural growth process called discipleship is all about seeing us change and transform. Not only a transfer of information, but a transfer of life. So take advantage of the opportunity to learn of Jesus and be everything God has saved you to be. If you want to get discipled this morning, you can open up your phone and, and go to the... There's an app if you don't know how to get to it. If not, you can get on our website uh, and, and you can just do the discipleship app. Sign up and I'll get you connected and directed. The saints at Antioch received ridicule in Acts 11, 25-26. That, as I mentioned, that term Christian means little Christ. It was intended to ridicule and to be... Uh, it wasn't intended to be a compliment. But when was the last time we suffered? Think about that. When was the last time I suffered for acting like Jesus? 
I mean, really suffered. I've done very little, uh, frankly, very little suffering for acting like Jesus. That's, I do believe that's why God has put us in, in really close proximity and relationship with our brothers in the East. Uh, because if you go on a trip and you see what they endure gladly, willingly, happily, it just it wrecks you, man. You're just like, wow. I thought I was a disciple till I went to Asia, right? <laughs> then you're like, okay, this is what the Bible's, this is what discipleship looks like. These people, they follow Jesus, period. Uh, there's no turning back, no turning back. When they decide to follow Jesus, it's all, in, it's all or nothing. And they pay, a lot of them pay a heavy price. And I, I don't mean to minimize that, by the way. Uh, some of you do pay a heavy price. Um, I know you come from certain families. Uh, if you're coming from a Muslim background, you're coming sometimes from a Catholic background. I mean, there is a price to pay when you're like, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus this way, all the way, biblically. So I don't want to minimize that. That's a heavy price, but it's worth it. The saints at Antioch reproduced because they grew to be disciples in Acts eleven twenty six. If discipleship produces Christ in you, then you're doing what God has asked you to do. So it's really simple, those two points. Real Christians reflect diversity. Real Christians reproduce spiritually. And thirdly, and we'll be done, real Christians reproduce cheerfully in Acts eleven twenty seven through 30. There at the end of the verse, all of a sudden it kind of changes tone there and the disciples from every man, according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of, of Barnabas and Saul. You see, real Christians, they give where, you know, where your treasure is, there's your heart also. One of the evidences that these people were serious about God is they put their money where their mouth was. Instead of buying a new RV, you know what? They put it to the relief of the brothers. They helped out the ministry. Every man, according, to, according as he purposed in his heart, it wasn't a mandate. Uh, Paul or, or Barnabas didn't say, hey, you got to do this, you got to do that. They just put it out, and God worked in their heart, and the evidence was there that they gave. They recognized, point A, they recognized the need. The days, uh, those days came when the prophets from Jerusalem came unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. They believed what the Word of God said. They saw that it was true, and they were sensitive to what God was doing in the lives of others. It wasn't all about them. They were willing to share the, the, the resources they had with others. They didn't hold grudges against Jerusalem, by the way, because the Jews had reflected uh, behavior against them that wasn't necessarily Christ-like. Instead of that, they gave to the people who once looked down upon them. How about that? Anybody want to do that today? Hey, man, if God gives you the opportunity, you should do it. That's the grace of God. There was grace in giving there, wasn't there? I mean, giving is a grace that God gives us. Maybe you're like one of those people that you're not, you're not able. I was so blessed when I got discipled. I got discipled by people who had giving grace, but they didn't always have giving grace. So they would tell me their stories and, of how God had to pry their money out of their cold, dead hands, right? You know, and how they, all, the, all these stories they went through and of course, I was a real skeptical guy myself. I, I wasn't one that was just like, hey, I trust everybody with you know, all intentions. I was pretty cynical. But man, God just started working in my heart. And I remember the first time I actually gave real hard, cold cash. I didn't just give, I gave everything in my pocket. That's all I had. It wasn't a lot, so don't get, don't get, uh, get carried away here. But when I was 16 years old, it was everything I had, uh, or 17. And, uh, and I tell you what, guys, it was like a gate opened in my life. You know, it was a gate of trust. We're just saying about trust. I started realizing I can trust God. I can trust God with this. And man, you want that going on in your life. Real Christians trust God in that area. Point B, they respond according to their ability. Now, not according to what you don't have, but according to what you do have. The disciples, every man according to his ability. So there's some out here, you know, these robber barons, preachers getting up in pulpits and on television sets going after old people. And, you know, trying to get things that they don't have, right? Not according to their ability, but robbing them. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about stupidity. I'm talking about these people understood that, you know what? I make $100,000 a year. It's not, it's not a big deal to give 10000 to the Lord. He gave me my eternal life, you know? And so they, they set aside some of what God has given, the first fruits according to their ability, and they give it to the Lord according to their ability. They respond. Everyone gave according to their ability, not according to someone else's ability. 
the, the Bible is clear. Give as God blesses and don't compare ourselves with ourselves. Ultimately, we do answer to the Lord. And lastly, uh, really follow through. In verse 30, it says, which also they did. He adds that on there. They didn't just talk about doing it. They actually did it, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. You know, it wasn't just asking. They did it, which they, which they did. We can talk all day about giving our lives or our finances or whatever, but real Christians not only respond cheerfully, uh, verbally, right? They actually do it. They have a, They deliver. How about answering the call of the day of salvation? The call of baptism, the call of discipleship, the call to get into HBI, the call to get into ministry, the call to grow up, whatever it is, to be an authentic Christ follower. Man, I pray to God with, God with my whole heart that that is what, man, I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to get to the judgment seat of Christ. And Jesus said, Brian, what were you doing down there? You were playing church. You were placating American Christians. Man, that is not the life I want to live. I want to live a life where I'm following Jesus, and I pray that we're all following Jesus and we're all in. Amen? Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity.